Every Civil War regiment has its own story, but even among the fascinating stories of the Civil War, the 20th Massachusetts stands out. We'll talk with the author of Harvard Civil War, A History of the 20th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry, Richard F. Miller, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Wherever you are, you deserve World Spa, a day spa for both men and women specializing in Western therapies with age-old Eastern techniques. All World Spa providers are professionally licensed specialists in their fields. We provide spa treatments for all schedules, from as little as 30 minutes to all-day programs. World Spa also has a spiritual library where you can relax and enjoy our collection of books, videos, and audio tapes. World Spa is open seven days a week by appointment and features a variety of special treatments, spa services, facials, exfoliation, and much more. We also offer products such as beauty and skin treatments, health drinks, herbal teas, and food supplements. World Spa also accommodates groups of five or more so you can make it a full and special day. Come enjoy the World Spa difference. Call us today at 619-624-0506 or visit us on the web at www.worldspas.org. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be on the air, behind the mic? Are you an expert in your field or just passionate about a particular topic? Then World Talk Radio has a place for you. You can host your own professional show and share your message with the world. World Talk Radio is producing a new fall lineup and is interested in hearing your show ideas. Let us help you start your own radio show today from anywhere in the world. Call right now to find out how you can become a host. It's easier than you think. Call 858-836-0164 or email us at newshows at worldtalkradio.com. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. Have a question or comment? To speak to our show hosts or guests during the live show, call in toll-free in North America, 877-514-7300. And from elsewhere in the world, call 001-858-277-1444. Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich with my guest today, Richard F. Miller, author of Harvard's Civil War. Richard, we've been talking about the subject of your book, The 20th Massachusetts Regiment, and it's absolutely a horrifying career in 1862, 1861 actually, through 63. Uh, they get stuck at Ball's Bluff. They're in the worst part of the Battle of Antietam. They're uh, the worst part of Fredericksburg. They uh, fight at Chancellorsville. They fight again at Gettysburg, and perhaps the worst place to be. It doesn't get uh, doesn't get good for these guys at any point. And by the end of 1863, they're just about out of people. 
That's when they start getting new new members to the regiment. How does that affect them? Well, it affects them uh, in a very interesting way because uh, based on uh, various general orders that were issued uh, in early 1863, uh, minimum size for regiments began to be required so that officers could not be either uh, commissioned or promoted unless the regiments could be of a certain size. And as the old regiments, of which the 20th was one, began to dwindle, uh, various officers, uh, like the Harvardians of the 20th, who were ambitious for command, suddenly discovered that all of their influence was insufficient to circumvent the regulations requiring size. So one of them, uh, Macy, went to Boston, and he negotiated with uh, labor brokers to import several hundred German immigrants uh, from, uh, who actually had been brought from uh, the German states to England, brought them over to this country and put them in the 20th in order to raise the regiment to the minimum size. And what's significant here is that unlike the Achtunwertzeigers of 1861, uh, who were men who had lived in this country for a decade and understood why they were fighting, the newer crop of German uh, immigrants uh, did not speak English. Uh, many of them were clueless as to what the fight was about. Many of them had been misled uh, by the soliciting brokers as to what their obligations were as well as what their uh, bonuses and other compensation arrangements were. So the 20th changed in character completely by early 1864. I thought it was an interesting point, uh, something I had not considered with, that you make in your book, is that these orders that deal with the shrinking regiments take away officer slots so that you can't have a unit that, that's all chiefs and no Indians, uh, so to speak. You cannot continue to have these officers. And that one of the side effects of this is that the regiments with the best officer material, the ones who've been through the most and have learned the most, are the ones who are now denied the opportunity for promotion. So well, it really right. hurts the uh, I would Army. say the regulations grew uh, out of uh, political pressure that was brought to bear against the Lincoln administration, uh, not in the case of the 20th, but there was a sense that there were simply too many chiefs. Uh, there were officers who led paper companies. Uh, the newspaper editorials of the time were flaming with complaints against the number of idle officers seen on the streets of places like Boston and New York and so forth. And the War Department came under pressure in order to make sure that officers, in fact, had viable commands. Which, and so that in itself makes sense, and yet you've got these new regiments being organized at full strength or the, the heavy artillery regiments that have been garrisoning Washington going to war that are overstrength. And they're being officered by men who, who haven't smelled powder yet, while you've got these idle veterans who know how to fight. Well, that's right. Uh, one of the things you have to look at, which is often uh, ignored, and that is that uh, an officer's salary uh, could be as much as uh, three, four, or five times what the average uh, working class wage was in 1860. So there were many incentives to get the commission but not do anything for it. So, so there, 
obviously people want commissions, but yeah. now you've got people who really deserve them, who have fought for three years. The best years. way to understand the commission, and you really only get a sense of this when you plow through uh, the various state archives, the best way to understand the commission as it was understood, at least in 1861 and 62, was as a patronage position. They were regarded little differently than one might in terms of applying for postmastership or uh, a position in the customs department, uh, which were all patronage positions. And they were desirable because they paid and generally required uh, not a great deal of work. And if you go back, I mean, not to give too negative a, a spin to that system, this, we're not far removed at this point from the Jacksonian era, the, the spoils system, the idea that when a party takes control of government, they remove everyone from the other party, put their own people in. It was Be the spoils system. But the, the sense is the spoils system, we think of it today as negative as corruption, but it was seen at the time as, as actually in some ways a positive thing because there was nothing in government so complex that the average citizen couldn't do it. The postmaster doesn't need to be a rocket scientist. And no, that's that right. makes and sense to share a, the public bounty. As you probably know, Greg, there, there is an excellent argument out there that essentially states that one of the reasons why the Confederacy collapsed, uh, just one, is that they didn't have a party system essentially to reward or include or co-opt uh, a number of uh, citizens uh, who might have been more willing uh, to contribute to the Confederate cause. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the North, uh, Lincoln was able to co-opt, uh, for example, war Democrats by essentially rewarding them with uh, both military and civilian positions. And, and by doing this, that's a classic political game. Now, the counter-argument that you can raise here is that the, the military is more serious than the postmastership, that if you're an incompetent postmaster, you might not put some mail in the proper slot, but if you're an incompetent colonel, you're going to get some men killed. That's true, and at the same time, remember, uh, below the rank of brigadier general, it was the state governors who had the commissioning authority. So you then have to look at the various state governors in the north and, for example, look at John Andrew, Massachusetts. Uh, he had never worn a uniform in his life. In fact, as a student in Bowdoin College, he was the founder of their peace society. Uh, state governors were not known for uh, their uh, military prowess, and frequently they regarded commissions as simply patronage. And that also leads them to want to raise new regiments late in the war with a whole new crop of patronage slots to dole out instead of reconstituting the existing regiments. Yes, that's right. And I would add one other thing to it, and that is that as long as the expectation was for a short war, the idea that there would be political repercussions from some of these idiot appointments uh, wasn't really on the radar screen. It was only when uh, the voters began to demand accountability from uh, state officials, that their appointments process became a bit more serious once the casualties mounted. Now, when we get to 1864 with the 20th Massachusetts, uh, once again, things, uh, as if a Hollywood screenwriter, again, were, were putting them in the worst places. They end up in the wilderness. They end up at the mule shoe. Uh, it's Spotsylvania. They end up at Cold Harbor. They're once again in the front, it seems, of every 
battle. Uh, they lose more of their officers. One of them is, is killed by one of his own men, apparently. Yes. Uh, that was actually a uh, famous murder case. There were only 37 documented cases of what we would call fragging uh, during the Civil War, where line officers were assassinated by their men, or a man. Uh, this was one of them. And the reason why I give it as much stress as I do in the book is that it also had an important social dimension to it, which was that it occurred at a time when conscripts, that is, uh, the fall of 1863, when conscripts were coming into the Army, and that created a tremendous amount of fear and trepidation on the part of the federal command because they thought they were now being overwhelmed by social inferiors. And there was a sense that these new men would be difficult to control. And the murder became emblematic. So you start to see a rise in uh, executions for desertion of uh, various parts trying to, to establish this control over the new men. Absolutely. And, in fact, if you read, for example, Francis Walker's very excellent uh, history of the Second Corps, uh, this is the murder that he mentions. And it's very, it figures very prominent uh, in federal circles at the time because the 20th, uh, it was a, uh, still regarded as a uh, well-disciplined Brahmin regiment, and the sense was if it could happen there, it could happen anywhere. And so this, created, this has, it's a symbolic moment that this carries through the whole army when this captain is, is shot by one of his men. Now that's exactly right. And what's interesting about the murder is that, as usual, um, the facts often don't bear out the anxieties. Uh, uh, the sense initially was that this, this was by a, a bounty jumper who was seeking simply to escape. Uh, it, it turned out uh, that it was a domestic dispute. Uh, between uh, the officer and a soldier, probably from another regiment, not the 20th, uh, who had been dating the same woman. A love triangle. A love triangle. And when she pledged herself to the 20th's officer and not to the other fellow, um, he decided to get even. It's an old story and didn't have much to do with social disorder, but that wouldn't be known for a long time. Yeah, and But that is often the case, that, that an event will happen and take on these emblematic overtones regardless yeah. of the, the truth well unfortunately we've come to the end of our hour the uh, we haven't got the 20th Massachusetts captured en masse as they are in the war's waning days but that's just one of, of uh, hundreds of fascinating stories about this regiment I highly recommend uh, as I do most weeks but the books are always good uh, to our listeners that you take a look at Harvard's Civil War by Richard F. Miller and find out what goes on in a regiment, the, the politics, the negotiation, and how these play out on the battlefield. It's a wonderful mix between the new social history and uh, traditional, uh, detailed, tactical military history, uh, making a fascinating book. Richard, thanks for being on the show today. No, thank you, and thank you, listeners, very much. Well, thank you, listeners, for listening. This is Jerry Prokopovich at Civil War Talk Radio.